So good evening. I thought um, tonight I would start with a story that is something that I observed actually in just downtown last week. I saw a woman with a couple of carts of belongings and a dog on a leash kind of walking in front of the post office and there on the um, on the corner kind of at the corner of the steps there's a place where homeless people also often hang out and there was a man there with two dogs of his own um, there and as the woman approached um, she sort of called out to this man and said you got those dogs and the man said yeah they're tied up and so she started to go forward um, and then I guess she got nervous and she called out to him what are they tied to and um, the dogs had then seen each other and were starting to snarl and bark a little bit it seemed like all of the dogs were an aggressive breed I'm not very good at dog breeds but they had that look <laughs> um, and so the man um, tried to answer her again but uh, at this point the the tone of voice of the people was actually getting kind of um, hostile and oppositional and then the, the light changed and I went on across the street but by the time I got to the other side they were shouting insults at each other and the dogs were barking at full volume it was quite a scene you know just from this woman trying to walk around the corner where the guy was so I you know I I thought about kind of the feeling of this and you know really I think we all have experienced escalations like this um, maybe externally with somebody else in a challenging relationship situation or maybe in our own mind you know where we think about something and then it kind of catches on fire and starts really obsessing us um, and you know we don't notice where it is in the corner of our mind that we're throwing wood on the fire <laughs> um, but these escalations are, are um, actually pretty common in human mind whether they get expressed externally or they're just going on internally and the Buddha knew about this he actually um, there are some discourses and teachings that he gives about this pattern in people so it's been going on for at least 2600 years <laughs> so if, it, if it's still going on in your mind take heart um, but what's interesting is that he talks about the Buddha talks about the mental process that's going on behind this kind of escalation and actually some ways to uh, work with it but just to give the word for it because I it's a great word um, the word is papancha I don't know if you've heard it before this is a Pali term um, papancha and it, it's sort of onomatopoetic, right? It, it sounds like this um, escalation, this sense of the mind going on and on. Uh, it's not technically, it's not ever really defined in the Pali canon. You know, they don't. There isn't like 
I'm telling you about Prapancha and what it means is. So it's just kind of used, like people are going to know what it means. It's used as a noun. Um, it's used as a verb to, to Prapanchaize, if you will. Um, and so it's not totally straightforward for people to translate it. Um, you know, if it's translated into English, where we read suttas. Um, I won't, I'm not enough of a scholar to really go deeply into the meaning, and don't worry, we won't tonight, but I, I did read um, some different uh, words that scholars think it might be related to and what they mean, because uh, so, it gives it paints a nice picture of this term. It might relate to a Sanskrit word that means to spread out, or expansion, or diffuseness, or manifoldness, if you will. So this propagation of the mind. It might relate to a word that means to have illusions, to imagine, or to be obsessed. (laughs) Sound familiar? Or it might relate to a word that means obstacle, impediment, or a burden that causes delay. I like that one too, because um, really, all that thinking, when we sit down, this is called discursive thinking, if you will, because it's about this thing back and forth, like a discourse. Um, so discursive thinking is essentially a delay to experiencing nibbana. <laughs> when you're sitting in meditation, thinking and thinking, it's not evil, it's not bad, it's a process of the mind, and it happens, but it is a delay. <coughs> you know, those ten minutes, going to be ten minutes long. <laughs> uh, so I, I like all these different words for papancha, these different ways of understanding it. The usual English translation, the most common one I've seen, is proliferation. Um, but there's also objectification, self-reflexive thinking, reification, complication, elaboration, or distortion. So you get the idea. It's basically the mind running wild on its own Kool-Aid. So to give an example, um, just to give a concrete example of how this might look, um, Suppose we see a car, a nice new Nissan Leaf, one of those electric ones, and so we perceive it as pleasant. Oh, it's cute, I like the color, I like the shape, I know that it's all, it has zero emissions, that's pretty cool. So it has a lot of pleasant things about it. And so, you know, hidden from our awareness, we've created this beautiful, amazing, interesting car, and us, who doesn't have the car. And so then there can be these thoughts that go about it like, oh, I want a car like that. (laughs) I should have a car like that. That looks really great. It's way better than my car. But I can't afford it. Those things cost way more than my measly pace check would allow. How come only rich people can do good for the environment? Or why do I have such a lousy job? I mean, I did well in college. What am I doing? Why do I have this? I should be doing better in the world. Or maybe we say, oh, yeah, I shouldn't be wanting such things. Actually, I'm supposed to be a good Buddhist. My desire is not that great of a thing. I'm very equanimous. I don't want that car. (laughs) So here it is. You know, the mind, what was the trigger? Seeing, actually. Seeing the car. That was what started all of this. Um, 
pretty soon the mind is at war. It's at war with the economy, it's at war with our stingy boss, it's at war with our own sense of self-judgment, um, all because we saw something and then let the mind run on it. Um, this is not to say that we shouldn't ever think about things. Obviously, we have to think about things, work through things, maybe for our job. Our job is to think things through and do things, plan things. It's not like this is wrong. It's a capability of the mind. Fine. Your mind is capable of this. What the Buddha is pointing out is that we should be a little bit discerning about whether or not this capability of the mind is leading the mind toward suffering, like happened with the leaf example, or whether it's leading the mind toward peace and getting something useful done at work and improving our relationships or whatever, you know, whatever it is that would be helpful at that moment. So we're asked to kind of take responsibility for when our mind is running off and have enough mindfulness to know when it's going in the wrong way, in a way that's not really that helpful for us or for anyone else. Not that this is easy, necessarily. So he does go through a pretty complicated analysis, which I won't go through all of, um, about how this happens. And the steps I pretty much outlined there um, in, in my example, but just to make them more concrete and actually list, the Buddha does actually give a list. So he says that it starts with contact. So that's like seeing so with an experience that we have, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and even thinking, we have an experience. And then from that, there's um, there's some kind of a feeling tone with it. Might be pleasant, might be unpleasant, might be kind of needed. That's what he means by feeling or sensation or impression. It's, a, it's not like the word feeling in psychology, like emotion. So this is the kind of the flavor of it. We like it, we don't like it. So it has a feeling tone, and then we think about that. So you know what we what we think about and what we perceive as there's a car. Then we start thinking about, it. and so all the the dressing that I put on that in the example. So like, oh, it's good for the economy. You know, that's that's starting to be thought about the car, or it's cute. I like the color. I like the shape. That's thought about the car. So there's this, there's the car, there's pleasant, there's a perception of it as a car, and then there's this thinking that goes around it that's determined by a lot of things, our history, our prevailing ideas at the time, our mood, etc. So we think about it. And then what we think about, we start to judge, and we start to decide that we like it, that we want it, and that it's a good thing to have. And then we start to create a story about me. I don't have it, therefore um, uh, I have a problem with my job, or I shouldn't have wanted it anyway, or why are rich people only allowed? You know, all that extra stuff um, starts being a story about me. Suddenly I'm in there. It's all about my history, my relationship, my life situation, and whether how I relate to this car. So it starts to become... Um, what's called dear and not dear, uh, things, it starts to tie into our values. You know, our values about green and about the economy and about who should make money and who shouldn't and all of that gets tied in, so that's dear and not dear. And from there, we move on to, depending on the sutta, there's a whole bunch of different words that come at this point. I'll read some of them. 
quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malicious words, false speech, and resorting to rods and weapons. So he actually declares, somewhat unsubtly, that papancha is the cause of war. Mm -hmm. Let me think about that. The cause of war is that our mind ran off somewhere and we didn't notice, and it became a big story. And then we imposed that on the world and we imposed it on other people and decided they should be a certain way and we were going to act. It's pretty humbling. And it all started with what? Contact and feeling. And then unmindfulness. So it leads to a lot of trouble. I think it's actually pretty, um, for me it's pretty inspiring as well as humbling that the Buddha gives this really deep psychological analyses in these very simple chains. And then once I see it, I might not have noticed this in my own life necessarily, but once I hear it, I can see it in my own mind. I can see my mind tracing that out. I may not go to war literally, (coughs) but I can see, you know, if I'm at certain times when the mind is vulnerable to this or I'm not as mindful, I see these chains or something I'm particularly identified with. You know, something that hurt me in the past, and so I have fear and, and defensiveness around it. So easy for that pattern to happen. And again, it's not wrong. It's not evil if your mind starts machinating like this. You don't have to say, "Oh, I'm a bad person." But it's you do have to. You do. You don't have to. But it's good if you notice that process, because it's starts sounding like a broken record in this practice, but. When we notice things like that, they start to be undermined. Not immediately, we may have to notice them 10,000 times, but that's the process of seeing it, seeing that it's not going in a helpful direction, and then allowing the heart to choose. The heart is smart enough to go away from suffering eventually, (laughs) if we're patient with it. This is also, just to give another example, this is also related I think, this is now Kim's interpretation, to what goes on in the social media sphere, um, where, you know, one little tweet can ignite, you know, it goes out across a million devices and ignites all kinds of hostile thoughts uh, from one little thing that is said. So that's the contact as a thought, as an idea, a tweet, maybe. And then it turns into this thing. I was reading an interesting article from, you know, from February of this year about um, social media and how they are now playing a role in revolution and protest. In particular, this article was talking about the Arab Spring from a few years ago where social media were actually shown to play a role in the toppling of the Egyptian government that was going on. And this was, there were some quotes from someone who was involved in that as one of the people who was actually generating some of that and helped to bring about that revolutionary act. And now, looking back several years later, he's criticizing actually that dimension. I want to read a little bit from this article. Social media amplified the polarization that was going on among, you know, in this revolutionary situation. Social media amplified the polarization by facilitating the spread of misinformation, rumors, echo chambers, and hate speech. The environment was toxic. And so then he goes on to list some problems with social media, one of which is Rumors that confirm people's biases are now believed and spread among millions of people. Number two, we tend to only communicate with people we agree with. 
And thanks to social media, we can mute, unfollow, and block everyone else. And then I, I won't read all of them, but a little farther down, he says, it has become really hard to change our opinions. Um, there's so little dialogue um, in favor of kind of one-way communication. Tweets, posts, you know, there's not this much, there's not this kind of intelligent um, place where you can feel the other person and have a, a sort of a feedback mechanism that might stop this runaway trail. Instead, the runaway trail can just run. So I'm not going to leave you hanging there. There are suggestions for how to cut this chain once we've started to become aware that this can happen in our mind and maybe seen it happen a few times. Um, there are two ways, kind of two top, well, I'll give two ways. One is um, mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of the body. Actually, in the immediate moment when the mind is starting to roll and we can feel it, and, or maybe it's too late, we've been sitting there for five minutes and we realize, oh gosh, I'm just obsessed with this. Breathe. <laughs> really, three breaths is good. Feeling your feet on the floor, feeling your butt on the chair, whatever it is. You can always do that, even if you're with another person, so you can't do some other practice. You can always return to the body, to something that's grounded in the present moment. And that is actually said in the discourses to be the um, most effective uh, stopping of discursive thought, is mindfulness of breathing, interestingly. So give it a try, see if it works. You can also go in the bathroom for five minutes and, you know, breathe. Most people won't object if you say, I need to go to the bathroom now. So you can do that. <laughs> it's okay. Um, to cut the root of this tendency, so this is a ability of the mind to run off. We're not going to stop the ability of the mind to think. Don't worry, that's fundamental to how the mind works. So you're not going to become a simpleton who's not able to do logical thinking anymore. You can start working with this. That will still be intact. What we want to stop is the thinking that goes towards suffering. And the way to do that is actually to, to dig deeper and to um, change our perception of situations. This takes time. It's a process. But we can train in changing our perception so that things are not so much about me. They're not, they're not so self-referential. Um, so widening the perspective. For example, we might try and see things from other people's perspective as a little mental exercise. Um, we might open our heart to compassion, to the pain that we're feeling about this obsession. You can, it's okay to feel the pain of papancha, because it's actually kind of painful. Um, feel that, and then trust that the heart will open and find a bigger perspective. Um, you know, open to... Like literally make, I've literally made my awareness larger sometimes. Like papancha tends to make the mind feel very small. Like the whole world gets very small and it's all about my little, like you're running around on a rat wheel, you know, in those little very small spaces. And so literally it's possible through um, just awareness of that to literally open awareness to a wider size. Make your awareness as big as this room. Does that help? Not big enough? Make it as big as Santa Cruz. Does that help? You know, as big as the state, however big it needs to be, so that the issue that's wrapping the mind up starts to look smaller, starts to be something that's in a bigger ocean. It is said, like the, the Buddha once said, if you put a teaspoon of salt in a glass of water, it becomes completely undrinkable. But if you put a teaspoon of salt in the Ganges River, eh, 
no problem. So we make the mind bigger so that our little salt of our particular issue is just not as big of the a, a fraction of the, of the whole. So simplicity. That's what I pointed to in the meditation. Keeping things simple when we can. I think the mind, I'll just conclude by saying that I think the mind wants to be simple. It wants to be simpler. At, at least if we tune into that because it's a lot of work to think through all that stuff and so there's um, yeah there's a movement toward simplicity as practice deepens and this actually helps on the cushion to move the mind toward concentration toward a simpler more relaxed state concentration is not at all a deep hard focus on things it's actually when you just stop doing all that other stuff then the mind is what? Focused. But it's not unfocused. Remember one of those words for Papancha was diffuse? And the mind is no longer diffuse with all that stuff. And it settles. And we can trust that movement. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.